Okay, well then let's get into our message. What's that? What? Okay, I think I can do this. All right. Oh, here's my Bible. 3.30. Woohoo! Okay, oh good, because we're going to release a bunch of stuff right now. So that's my introduction, okay? So... <laughs> What's that? Oh, we we saw I don't know five six people get healed. Endometriosis. The woman who was healed of the endometriosis, she had her 16 year old daughter with her. They end up getting saved. They're on the ground laughing. I walk over there, and this lady looks up at me after laughing for, what, 10 minutes on the sidewalk? Like, they're curled up together laughing or on the bench or whatever it was. She looks up at me, and she asks, how much longer is this going to last? <laughs> to which I responded and said, hopefully the rest of your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what I should have said but didn't was, and don't let any Christian talk you out of it. So, the reason why I say that, by the way, is because it's amazing to me how so many people are embracing of the healing movement and signs and wonders and miracles, but they don't, they they tend not to embrace the empowerment that brings all that about, the presence. They want the power, but they don't want the presence oftentimes, which is religion. In his presence is fullness of joy. It's amazing. When you, when you're, when I, I, I I see this all the time. I'm healing people, miracles. Everybody's like, yeah. Then I'll say, you know how this is really happening? (laughs) Oh, it's the devil. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you think heals people? It's the presence that brings the power. If you get that in backwards, by the way, it's religion. The Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to yada Christ. I want to gnosko Christ. Philippians 3. I want to have a personal, intimate, face-to-face encounter with Christ. And I want to know his power. I want to have a personal, face-to-face encounter of intimacy with his power after his presence. If you get those backwards, it turns into religion and striving and performance. Death, ultimately. So we want his presence, right? We want to operate out of his presence. Psalm 1611 tells us emphatically, in his presence is what? (laughs) Not sadness, not weeping, gnashing of teeth. That's reserved for hell, Gehenna. I'm just, it's just the way it is. But yet in church we've been taught that, that crying brings the presence of God. Isn't that right? If I brought somebody up here right now, you have to, now be honest with me. If I brought somebody up here and I said, listen, they have a week left to live. This is a 35-year-old man. He's got three children, a wife. He's got a business. He's going to lose everything if he dies. But he needs a miracle breakthrough today. Now, come on. Pray for him right now. Stretch out your hands and pray for him. Many of us in this room would immediately, oh, God, oh, God, oh, 
that's obviously hyperbole, but it's pretty close. It's fairly close. I mean, come on, how many, how many of you have seen people pray that way? Why? Because we think that if we adjust our attitude down to crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth, that it will somehow attract more of heaven and influence God to come and intervene on our behalf. So we hadn't, we have not felt sad or weepy, but when we got the news that there was a prayer need, we adjusted our attitudes to a lower altitude <laughs> to try to get him to come from heaven to earth. Right? A lot of people say, well, I don't feel happy. We know that. <laughs> Your face is surely showing it. <laughs> I would just feel like a hypocrite if I just started laughing when I prayed over someone if I didn't feel happy. Oh, but it's okay for you to be a hypocrite and cry and weep when you didn't feel that way before. We've just been taught that weeping is acceptable in the presence of God, but laughing is irreverent, sacrilegious. Oh, Lord. I mean, come on. Think about this. Do you know how much joy is mentioned in the Scriptures? Okay, just real quick. Okay, I'll get to this message in just a second. This is my second introduction right here. Turn, turn. This is probably better than my other message anyway. Psalm 126. Wait, Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Second Psalm. Whoa. Psalm 2. Just to speed this up a little, the context of Psalm 2 is that the Kings of the earth are trying to plot, strategize to thwart the plans of God on the earth. What's God's remedy? What's his answer? Psalm 2-4. The one enthroned in heaven, who is that? Jesus. God. Right? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. By the way. Not, now notice here. He who, the one enthroned in heaven, laughed, duh. Duh, no. Continually laughs. God didn't just laugh one time in history and say, okay, that's enough, now let's get on to maturity. Which you see, most of us are taught in children's church. 
Okay. Do you, do you know that 80% of all people who come to Christ do so before they're 18 years old? How many of you in this room came to Christ before you were 18? Raise your hand. Some of you aren't going to raise your hand for anything, but... Okay. A great... A, a, a lot of people in this room. Most of those, 80% of those, do so come to Christ before they're 12. How do they come to Christ? Because God is presented to them as a good God in a good mood. Happy God, smiley God. We get to play games and eat cookies and drink, you know, milk. And we get to run around and laugh. And then there comes a certain period of age, around 12 years old. And you're in a classroom or in Sunday school, and you look at your friend, and you don't know why. You just start laughing. (laughs) And the teacher comes along and says, what are you laughing about? I don't know. We just looked at each other. Why, you just go out into the hallway right now until you can control yourself and act like an adult, like me, miserable. And if you ever want to go to big church, you'll wipe that smile off your face, young man. (laughs) Do you know the statistics tell us that most people backslide in their life between the ages of 13 and 16? Why? I believe it's because the church won't let the kids laugh anymore. And so now they're going everywhere else where they're promised happiness... Laughter, enjoyment, when joy, laughter should be in the house of God. It's time for the church to learn how to laugh again. But the problem is we've been taught a theology which really is rooted in Gnostic Platoism. That says this material world is evil, we're evil, everything in the world's evil. God's going to destroy this earth, burn us all up because he really doesn't love the world anymore. He changed John 3.16 without telling us. (laughs) All right, Psalm 126. I could just go off for hours on this stuff. The reason why is because I used to be the weeper and the gnasher of teeth. I used to be the leader of that charge. God doesn't make us happy because that's based on a happenstance. That's fleeting. It comes and goes. I have joy. (laughs) Which was really more interpreted like peace. I have joy. For most Christians, they don't tolerate any emotion whatsoever. Except for anger. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Anger is okay. Wow. Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. This is the, not only descriptive of those coming out of captivity out of Babylon back into the presence of God, worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. This is a prophetic promise of what it would be like for us to come into Christ. Turn over to uh, to, uh, Luke chapter 6. 
Now, this is going to give you a New Testament text that will help you to understand that laughing is actually legal in the church. Verse 20 of chapter 6, looking at his disciples, he said, Hugely happy are you who are poor. Now, I know some of your translations say blessed, right? Blessed, 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 blessed. No, 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 no. Absolutely wrong. It's false. If Jesus wanted to say blessed, he would have used the Greek word eulogio, where we get the English word eulogy. When we go to a funeral and we're speaking well of somebody, we bless them with our words and we say a eulogy. That's to bless somebody, eulogio. If Jesus wanted to say bless them, he could have used the word eulogio. It was certainly accessible to him in this culture. It was a Greek word. He was speaking Greek. He didn't say eulogio. He said makarizo, which comes from two Greek words, mac, like where we get the word Big Mac. It's true. Mac. Mac. Huge. Now, I know that's an oxymoron because Big Macs really aren't that big, but it's a great marketing ploy. Big Mac. They're really dinky. But huge. And Rizzo, happy. In fact, if you study the etymology of the word, the origin of the word, you'll know that Alexander the Great commissioned his scholars to come up with a word that was better than Rizzo. Happy. He said, listen, I need a word that's better than Rizzo. I like Rizzo, I just want it better. So they went, you know, they thought, and they came back, and they, we've got it. Macarizzo, that's it! That's it! Which, in its original context, meant happiness that was, that circumstance, life, or death itself could not touch. So when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he used this word, Macarizzo, are, are you who are poor? Hugely happy are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're poor in spirit right now, if you're poor, oh, get ready. You should get really happy because when the kingdom comes, you're going to get it. Now, when did the kingdom come? This is not a trick question. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand among you. It's here right now. Are are you all agreed on that? That's what the Bible says. So hugely happy are you who are poor now before the kingdom comes. For yours is the kingdom of God. Hugely happy, Macarizzo, are you who hunger now. Why should you get happy if you're hungry? Because you're going to get filled up. You will be satisfied when the kingdom comes. Are you with me here? Hugely happy are you who weep now. Why? When the kingdom comes, you will laugh. When did the kingdom come? With Jesus. And it's coming in increasing measures now, isn't it? As we've been instructed to declare, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our job, is to bring heaven to earth into every situation, every environment that we find ourselves into, everyone we meet. Is that right? So what are we to be bringing from heaven to earth? Laughter! I used to teach what we get to laugh when we get to heaven. The millennium. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is in hand. 
Now is the time for laughter. Well, what about when God disciplines us? Hey, I hope you don't discipline your children when you're in a bad mood. God doesn't discipline us, by the way, to punish us. God disciplines us to bring us into our destiny. He's happy. The point is that laughter is a normal expression of the kingdom of God. Laughter fills heaven. And if it fills heaven, it should fill the earth. But isn't it interesting when somebody's crying in church? <laughs> Nobody knows the trouble I've been through. Nobody knows but Jesus. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home into the next millennium so I can laugh. And everybody's like, oh, pastor, you're preaching it up today. God's spirit is here today. This is amazing. Keep going. This is awesome. Look at it. They're crying. You've got them. And there's somebody over on this side like, oh, it's the devil. Kick them out of the church. What? Come on, Kevin. Listen, God is good. Devil's bad. God is in a good mood. Devil's in a bad mood. God laughs. Devil cries. God does good things. The devil does bad things. That's the good news and that's the bad news. It's as simple as that. Well, what about when somebody dies in your family? Are you saying you shouldn't? No, 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 no. Weep with those who weep, but don't leave them there. When my teenage girl would come home and she was hurt by something somebody said to her, I wouldn't go, oh, honey, I'm so glad you're crying. Keep it up. I've been praying for this breakthrough for you. Just keep crying. No, I'm like, oh, sweetheart, what happened? Tell me. Come here. Let me give you some sympathy. (laughs) Come on. Tell your daddy. I want to hear. Oh, oh, I feel horrible. I feel that pain. And then after a certain time, I'm like, okay, now, make your daddy feel a lot better right now, okay? Now, she's 19, right? (laughs) Make your daddy feel better. Come on, let's just see a little smile. I need to know that you're okay now. Little smile. Oh, here it comes. Oh, I'm, I'm getting so happy. Okay, what is it going to take? New pair of shoes? (laughs) Anything, anything to make you happy, anything to see your smile, anything to hear your laugh. How much better is our Heavenly Father than we are? He wants to hear us laughing. He doesn't like it when his kids are weeping and gnashing their teeth at each other especially. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, we'll turn over to uh turn over to somewhere. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter eight. Shagabah. All right. The people have just been delivered out of bondage in Babylon. They find the law. They read it for three days. They repent. They repent before God. They turn back to God, right? And in verse 10 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, just if you can't find Nehemiah, turn to Psalms, hang a left, go past Job, and it'll be your first, second on the right. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get Bible GPS. <laughs> I actually have that. <laughs> I can't read it. I need to be healed. Yeah. All right. Okay. Verse 10 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food. What? Go and enjoy. Wait, I thought they were repenting. I thought they were in church here. They are. So he said, go and enjoy choice food at In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) And sweet tea. (laughs) That's what my version says. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. In other words, we're supposed to give others a party out of the party that's in our atmosphere. We're to change the atmosphere around us wherever we go, but we can only change the atmosphere around us if the atmosphere within us has changed. But we should always be carrying enough for other people who don't have enough. So go away and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Now, this day is so sacred to the Lord. We're supposed to be so reverent This is what I want you to do. Now, just keep this in mind. It's really a sacred day, so I want you to do this. Do not grieve! This day is so sacred, so holy to God. You cannot grieve. You'll mess it all up. The time for grieving is over. You already repented. Now is the time for the party. Listen, when we came into the kingdom, we didn't come into the kingdom to spend the rest of our days weeping and gnashing teeth. We've been delivered from that fate. Our destiny is to be joy-filled and laughter. is to be expressed through our lives. I mean, that's the goal of salvation. It's the good news of depression. It's the good news of great joy, which is for all the people. The good news is what? We get to be happy. Macarizzo. Hugely happy. Thank you, brother. I'm just going to stand right over here now. (laughs) So he says, this day is sacred to our Lord. It's so sacred, so holy. This is what I want you to do. Do not grieve. Why? Why should you not grieve? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, actually, that word can also be translated as empowerment. 
It doesn't mean that we have more strength to lift more weights at the gym. It means the power to live the Christian life. To accomplish the mission for which God's given us to accomplish. By the way, we're told in Luke 9 that Jesus was filled with joy through the Holy Spirit. The disciples, the apostles actually, in Acts 13, they were continually full of joy and the Holy Spirit. If they needed joy in the Holy Spirit to fulfill their mission, supernatural, impossible mission, how much more do we need joy, the empowerment of joy, in our lives to fulfill the supernatural destiny that God's given to each one of us? To heal the sick, to raise the dead. How are we going to do that? (laughs) Right? It's like Abraham, when he was told he was going to be a father of a nation. He's going to do the impossible. He was way past the age of having children. What was his response in Genesis 17? He fell face down before God and started laughing. Sarah did the same thing. In the next chapter, when God came to her, he said, oh, you were laughing. No, I wasn't. Oh, yes, you were. In fact, I believe the only reason why they got into the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 was because they laughed. That's my theory. I mean, think about it. They even named their child laughter. Isaac means laughter. So the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's why I don't want you to grieve. It's time for the church to learn how to laugh and allow laughter in the church to cultivate joy in our environment so that when people come into our church, they actually can sense God's presence. Yeah, come on. See, a lot of people, they, th- they say, oh, joy, laughter is out of order. It's indecent. Right? How many of you have heard that or even thought it? I have. But no, no, no. Let's think of it this way. Actually, crying is out of order and indecent. It is. I mean, even Eric Clapton knows that there's no weeping in heaven. And the church should only have what's in heaven in the church, don't you think? So crying is abnormal. Out of order and decent, laughing is in order. Well, then their response is, yeah, but it's like mayhem. It's like it's just all confusing. No, it's only confusing to the elders. (laughs) It's true. The elders are usually the ones that are really up in arms about the laughter. The new believers, the visitors, they're like, thank God. Finally. I can laugh without having to smoke a joint. (laughs) I can laugh without having to pay 50 bucks to go to the comedy club. And this laughter seems real and authentic. You see, people in the world, they are not taken aback by the laughter in the church. It's usually the believers But when Paul wrote, everything should be done in decency and in order in 1 Corinthians 14, he was not speaking about customer service for the Christians that were in the meetings. The context there is that he's giving instruction to 
the Christians about how to treat the unbelievers when they come into their midst. And he's saying, listen, don't just speak in tongues only. Like, because you're going to do this for the whole time, and the unbelievers aren't going to even know what you're talking about unless you interpret what you're saying in tongues. So use good customer service tactics. Prophesy so that they can hear the heart of the Father and get saved. I can tell you this, when the church begins to laugh, the world will flock to the church. And the young ones who have backslidden after they've been duped, saying that they can laugh, and then we tell them they can't really, and they're going to have to be miserable the rest of their lives until Jesus comes back. Then you'll get to laugh. They'll start coming back to the church. Because they're out there trying to find substitutes that will fulfill that early Desire in their hearts to know God and who He truly is and how He truly exists. And they'll come right back into the kingdom. So, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still. Be still. This is for the, why? Why should you be still? For this is a sacred day. Do not grieve! No more grieving! There will be no more grieving in this house. (laughs) Do not grieve. This is the second time they have to tell them. They don't believe it. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. (laughs) Because they now understood the words that that had been made known to them. They now understood... The message. They understood God's heart. That He didn't want them to continue to grieve for the rest of their lives because they would they'd lose hope. They would lose strength, empowerment to carry out the supernatural destiny that God had prepared for them. They needed to be propelled through the joy of the Lord. They understood it now. That God had created them to live in his presence, which is fullness of joy. You know, David was only concerned with two things after he had sinned and repented. He said, oh God, please. I can live without anything else. Anything else. But I can't live without these two things. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I cannot live without your Holy Spirit's presence. cannot live without the presence of God. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not my salvation, which is often quoted, your salvation. Hmm. I can't live without the joy, God. I can live without love. I can live without peace. I can live without abundance. But I can't live without joy. I can't live without your presence. It's the good news of great joy. It's not the good news of great love. I mean, the angel could have said a whole lot of different descriptive words to to describe the good news. But the good news is of of one end, and that's great joy. You see, a lot of people, they think that the good news is to get people saved. No, 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 no. That's just the bridge that leads to the end, the good news of great joy. The cross is the means to the end. The good news, which is demonstrated in signs and wonders and miracles, healings, prophetic insights to call out the golden people, 
So that it becomes a sign and a wonder to make them say, oh, that must lead to Jesus. It does. Oh, I wonder if that's God. It is. Okay, I want him. And they, over to joy. See, we want to do it like this. The cross is somehow bent. (laughs) You get saved and then you come right back to where you started. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200 until you get rescued one day and go to heaven. Until then, you're in jail. And there's no get out of jail card for you. Wow, Kevin, come on. This is so ingrained in the church. And it really comes, <laughs> you're going to really hate me for this one, I'm sure. It comes out of the mystic movement, the monastic movement which was really rooted in Gnosticism in this, this place that says we're so evil. We're so we're sinners saved by grace. You are not sinners saved by grace. You are saints saved by grace. Paul didn't write to the Colossians. To those at Colossae, the sinners at Colossae, I write this. To the sinners at Philippi, to the sinners at Thessalonica, I write this. No, no, no. To the saints at Thessalonica, to the saints at Colossae, to the saints at Ephesus. We're not sinners saved by grace. We're saints saved by grace. But sinners saved by grace comes out of this Gnostic thing that man is inherently evil. Even though we're saved, we're still evil. So therefore, we can't be trusted with anything. We need taskmasters over us, pastors, to control us because we're stupid, dumb sheep. And if we don't have somebody whooping us, telling us what to do all the time, we're going to lose our way. We won't make it to heaven because we're dumb. We're nearsighted. Come on, right? You've heard all these analogies. It's ridiculous. And so... The monastics, I know I love their fervor for God, obviously, but they, they were tweaked. They didn't have a revelation of how God truly exists and who we are in Him. Because it's like, okay, every movement of God that you study in church history, their goal was to get into the cave, eat breadcrumbs, so to speak, light little birthday candles, and try to read the scriptures on their knees, bloodied, on a rock floor in a cave, And stay there for 40 days and 40 nights to prove their devotion to God. Listen, there's nothing we can do to prove our devotion to God. He proved His devotion to us. Which erased the need for us to prove our devotion to Him. But when you're in this place of Gnostic, Platoistic monastic mindset. The joy of the Lord seems so foreign. Like, what in the world are you talking about? That's just not even the... that, That can't be God. Because we're supposed to be suffering now to prove our devotion to God. We're supposed to just be, like, like, beating ourselves or going without, doing without, suffering. Here, I'll put a thorn in my own side. Which, by the way, has nothing to do with blindness or cancer or anything else. It's persecution. It's not an illness. Whoa. 
I was in India, and we, we were invited to this huge organization, 30,000 people at this conference, leaders' conference. And so we were supposed to do all the healing there. In fact, Chris Gore was with me on this particular trip. We get there, and, and they hadn't seen a miracle. This is a Pentecostal organization that was started in the early 1900s. Hadn't seen a miracle in 75 years or so. So we get there, and we're all of a sudden healing the team, uh, healing. Remember that, Chris? And we started, we started just, we were just getting, we were just there, and, and the worship leader of the whole thing, he had fall, he'd gotten uh, in a car accident. His thumb was almost torn off, or finger or something, and that got healed. His diabetes got healed. Um, Abraham Valson's, uh, I shouldn't probably mention his name, but... Um, anyway, I just did. Now I've like totally like, accentuated it. But um, his sister got healed over the phone and just all these healings. And so uh, so we're there and, and, and we're just going after healings to the point where now they're like, we, let's not just wait to the evenings. We need to like open up like a place for you guys to heal people during the daytime. So we get a room a little bit smaller than this. And we're in there, our team of about 10 of us. And uh, we just have an interpreter with each one of us. And, I mean, people are just getting healed. People are calling from six to eight hours away asking if we're going to be healing the next day because they want to drive their relatives. And by the third day, we have people going out the door waiting for us to lay hands on them to heal them. And uh, and so on the third day, I think it was, or maybe the fourth day, we have a team from the United States, and they're part of the heal- some healing rooms of some kind. Do you remember this? And they came, and they're like, hey, well, we'd like to help. And they had a group of about 12 of them or something like that. And so I said, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you so much. We could use all the help we can get because we can't, even, we can't take care of all these people. And so we get in a circle, and we do our pre-service healing prayer, which is basically... <laughs> you know, and they're looking at it like, oh, my God. OMG. This is weird. So afterwards, the, the leader, he comes up to me and he, and he says, well, that was, that was interesting. Uh, time of prayer. And I said, oh, yeah, that's great, isn't it? So much better than a chalkboard writing complaints for an hour and then lobbing up a 30-second prayer help, you know. And uh, so, so he says, well, I notice you don't have your oil out. Do you have your oil? And he pulls out this thing of oil. And, and I say, uh, you remember this? And, uh, and I say, oh, yeah, I got my oil. And he says, oh, where is it? Let me see. Mine's from Israel. I said, oh, well, mine's from heaven. <laughs> He goes, he goes, really? I go, yeah. He goes, where is it? I go, it's right in here. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He goes, oh, you need to have your oil. I said, I have it. He says, oh, well, we always use the oil. I said, oh, well, go for it. That's awesome. If that's working for you, go for it. I have no problem with oil. Just don't be smearing that stuff all over me, okay? <laughs> so, so he goes, okay, well, um, how do you want the teams? 
do you want our team to, to go over here and your team will go over there? And I said, no, 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 no. Um, there are too many people to be healed. Um, you know, each one of you, we have interpreters lined up. Each one of you is going to take an interpreter and you'll just go into each section. And he goes, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. We, we, what, what? I said, um, yeah, each one of you will just take an interpreter and go for it. I said, don't worry, you've got your oil. <laughs> he goes, oh, well. <laughs> he goes, well, we always work in teams. I said, well, we don't have an, there's too many people to work in teams. You're just going to, you have a team. It's you and your interpreter. That's what I said. So he goes, well, all right. And so we start, you know, blind eye open. You know, Chris has got, you know, people like with crutches throwing them against the wall or whatever and running around the room. And my son Chad's there and Bobby Brown. We had one guy who fell down a well that I was praying for and he was all crippled up. Remember this guy? And, uh, and uh, he, um, he's all like crippled up and he gets whoop, totally straight. And then he starts doing this snaky thing in front of me. And I cast this demon out. He falls on the ground. And then we do this like catalytic sozo thing over him where we just heal him. And he forgives himself and asks for forgiveness from God. And meanwhile, his wife is being ministered to over on the other side of the room. They come back and reconcile to each other in this meeting. And all these things are going on. It's just over-the-top crazy good. And so after about 20 minutes, this leader comes up to me, and he's holding his oil. And he goes, man, we haven't seen one breakthrough at all. He goes, and he throws the oil against the wall and he goes, all right, give me what you have. And so our whole team, so our whole team, we go around and we're like just releasing the joy of the Lord on them. And they go back and all of a sudden, blind eye open, you know, crippled, healed, miracle after miracle. And he came up to me afterwards and he, and he just spoke to me and he said, Kevin, thank you so much for just you know, not even judging me or anything else, but I've learned so much today and I want you to know we will never do healing rooms again from this day forward. Whoa. It's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Our empowerment comes from the joy of the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to end in 14 minutes with my message. Whoa. Which is going to lead back to this introduction. Okay, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. I'm going to go pretty quick here. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Named them apostles. My point here, to save time, all of us, every single one of us is called to be a healing revivalist. Every single one in this room is called to be a world changer, a history maker. Are you all agreed? A a sent one, an apostle, so to speak. We're all called to be sent ones. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's for the whole church. It's for each and every one of us. And so Jesus called his disciples, learners, students, those who didn't know a whole lot, who were really incompetent. And lacking confidence. I mean, they're unschooled, untrained people. And Jesus is selecting them to be world changers and history makers. Just like he's called us. And so he brings them along and he trains them. He teaches them. He demonstrates for them. And then in Luke chapter 9, 
He says, okay, you guys have had enough training now. I want to see what you have. Let's see what you have. You've been designated apostles. I know you're, you think you're not there yet, but I want to just show you something right now, that you have what it takes to change the world. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Luke, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority, power and authority, to drive out some of the demons, all, all demons, and to cure diseases. Now, it's really important that you remember this. All demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Right? So you know the rest of the story. They go out. They're amazing. They, they release the kingdom of God. They come back and they're sharing all the testimonies. And they're like, yeah, we have what it takes. We are world changers. We are history makers. Woohoo! We are really designated. We are called with a purpose. We do have a supernatural destiny. We have what it takes. This is amazing. Right? Okay, look over at verse 37. Now, it says here the next day, but it's really about the next week. The next day, in other words, other things have transpired since this, since verse 37. The next day, when they came down from... The mountain, a large crowd met him, that is Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. What? Could not or would not. Now, this is the account of the father, that the disciples told him they couldn't do it. What? Wait a minute. The beginning of chapter 9, Jesus gave them power and authority to drive out all demons. They could not? My theory is this. Now, it's obviously we're not told what's going on. But I believe they gave up. They prayed once and it didn't happen. Maybe even twice. And they gave up and said they couldn't when they actually could. If they would have kept persevering. Look at what Jesus says here. Verse 41. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Who is he speaking to? His disciples. Oh, unbelieving. I just told you you could do it. Why do you doubt? See, when I pray, he comes. And when he comes, he does good things because he's a good God in a good mood. I have no doubt whatsoever that when I release the kingdom, his kingdom comes. Jesus would not have asked us to declare that if he had no intentions of coming when we declared it. A unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Oh, bring your son here. I'll take care of it. Now, look over at chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, chapter 10, verse 1, and sent them out two by two. Why did he send out 72 others? My theory is this. 
Because the other 12 wouldn't go out anymore. The reason why I come to that conclusion is that if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, there is not one other instance in the whole rest of the Gospel, maybe a year and a half, two years, in two years maybe, there's not one other instance of any of the disciples stepping across the chicken line again to heal somebody or to cast a demon out of someone. In fact, what we find is Peter actually denying Jesus three times for fear of the Jews. He is so afraid that he denies Jesus once right to his face. I don't know the man. What? You're a history maker. I know, but back in Luke chapter 9, I couldn't do it. I really don't have what it takes. I, I know all those other people got healed, but I couldn't do this one. I, you, you picked the wrong guy. I don't know the man. Oftentimes the enemy will piggyback on our disappointments wow. until it progresses to disillusionment which leads to a derailment of our destiny. I mean, think about it. The apostles were hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. They wouldn't even go outside to eat. They were doing takeout or whatever. I'll never forget, when I was first a Christian, I used to go around healing everybody, anything that walked, that was limping I was, when I was first a Christian in 1975, uh, I thought the Old Testament was written in the 1960s because it was old. And that the New Testament was written in the 70s, and I thought it had just come out. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. They just came out with this. This is awesome. And so I started reading the Bible, and I started reading about the life of Jesus and the apostles. And, and they were healing the sick everywhere they went, so I just thought that was normal. I just thought, okay, I was so ignorant, I just did it. Well, news of my healing people all around town got to this one pastor, and he called me one day and asked if my fiance, now wife, Teresa, my wife, Teresa, could come over and pray for this woman who was dying of cancer. And I said, my first thought was, why wouldn't you? You're a pastor. You're a leader. I've just been a Christian for a year. And so I went over, and, you know, we prayed for the woman, gave it our best shot. And an hour after we got home, he, the pastor called us and, to inform us that the woman had just died. And I thought I killed her. I did. I thought I killed her because I didn't have enough faith. I thought I killed her because I, sh- I, I wasn't gifted enough. I thought I killed her because I was arrogant and prideful, and I should have gotten somebody who was more gifted and more anointed. So for 23 years, I was derailed from my supernatural destiny and would never pray for anybody who was sick. Even as a pastor, I was even on the National Evangelistic Board of the Vineyard and would not pray for anyone for for healing. As a pastor of a church, people would come up to me and ask for prayer. And I said, oh, no, you don't want me to pray for you. Get Joaquin. Get Joe Bob whatever. 
Get anybody but me, because if I pray for you, you could die. And I, I mean, I was really serious. Like, I was really trying to help them. Like, you do not want me to pray for you. Because I kill people. I don't heal people, I kill people. One day the Lord said to me, do you really think you have that much power, Kevin? No. Well, why don't you just lay hands on people and let me figure it out? And that eventually happened. I had an amazing breakthrough. But for 23 years, I was derailed from my destiny because of a disappointment, a failure that led to disillusionment, which derailed me from my true supernatural destiny. So do you want to know how to get out of that place and stay out of that place? Well, let's follow the life of Peter here just for another two minutes. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is the key to stepping into our true supernatural destiny and living in that place, even when we have disappointment. Shabbat. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. By the way, I believe that tongue of fire is passion. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So what was the, what was the key evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? No. No. First of all, the key manifestation that we're told of in Scripture to prove that we have the Spirit of God inside of us is love. If we don't have love, all the rest of it doesn't even matter. That is the ultimate manifestation that we truly have the Spirit of God inside of us. First Corinthians 13. Right? What's the second? Who said that? Yeah, come on, Margie. Look, look over, look, look over at verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, oh, they've had too much wine. Now, they don't even mention anything about speaking in their own languages. All they know is that it's 9 o'clock in the morning and these guys are like, oh. They could tell that they were drunk. They could tell that they were drunk. How did they know they were drunk? Because they drank alcohol. And I used to drink a lot of alcohol. And I can tell if somebody's drunk from 50 yards away. Look at that guy. He's hammered. He's singing and he can't even carry a tune. That guy's dancing and he has no rhythmic bone in his body. Look at that, that lady. She's talking to everybody and they don't even want to listen. She could care less. Come on. How did they know they were drunk? They looked like they were drunk. Somehow over made fun of them, said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. Is this the same Peter that denied Jesus three times once to his face? Is this the same Peter that was hiding in the upper room? And now all of a sudden he's standing before this hostile crowd who had just crucified Jesus and he raises his voice 
in complete confidence, no fear of man, no fear of persecution, no fear of failure whatsoever, stepping out into supernatural destiny. Is this the same Peter? Yes. Why? Because he got drunk. Drinking leads us into our destiny. Our destiny is to be drunk. Look it. He stood up with a loud voice, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. In other words, they're drunk, but just not like you think they're drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is the presence of God. This is the spirit of God. In his presence is fullness of joy. This drunkenness that you're seeing is none other than being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that Paul... Oh, boy. Okay, so, so... In Acts chapter 3, we find Peter now going to the gate beautiful. He sees a guy begging for silver and gold. He says, hey, I don't have that, but I'll give you what I do have. (laughs) Leak on you right now. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He picks him up. And if you notice in that story, he doesn't get healed until Peter picks him up. Risk, risk, risk. Why did he take risk? Because he was drunk. Drunk people take more risk than do sober people. It's true. Drunk people will drive a car. That's stupid. Risk. Drunk people will jump off a cliff into too shallow water. That is stupid. Risk. Drunk people will sing in public. They'll dance in public. And they shouldn't. Drunk people take more risk than do sober people. It's that way in the kingdom. The more we drink, the more we're apt to take risk. And so here Peter had been derailed from his destiny because he had been disillusioned by disappointment. And now he gets drunk and he's back in his destiny. And now he sees a man with a need. He says, oh, I can take care of that. I'm a physician's assistant. I'm a drunk physician. Here, come on, get up. And the strength came into his ankles and his feet. And he was made whole. And pretty soon he's so drunk, he's walking by people and his shadows healing people. He's so cellular with God's presence. I believe, and I, oh, can I just have 30 seconds? Okay. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll end with this. Oh. You guys are going to have to promise me you'll get, you'll just activate yourselves in this. Well, just start right now. Just drink. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says this, Do not be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery. Debauchery is an old English term that means you lose all of your inhibition. You lose all of your fear that you would otherwise have. And you lose that and do things, stupid things, crazy things that you should be or are ashamed of the next morning, right? (laughs) You don't have to be so agreeable there. Like You don't have to confess here. But rather, don't do that, but rather be drunk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you're going to lose all of your inhibition. You're going to lose all of your fear. And you're going to take more risk to cross the chicken line to step out in your true supernatural destiny and heal people. The joy of the Lord is your empowerment. 
The joy is what fuels us into our destiny, and it's the joy that fuels the presence and the power of God to come to bring breakthrough wherever we take risk to release His presence and power. That's why we must learn to live in His presence, cultivating joy in our lives. Like, I don't feel happy. Well, you don't feel like loving all the time, but it's, you don't do what you feel like. I don't feel like forgiving. I know. Do what you tell others. We don't live by feelings. We live by faith. Everything in the kingdom is a matter of choice that we make by faith and it's cultivated on a daily basis. And so I just want to encourage you guys that just like love, just like giving, just like forgiving, joy is to be cultivated. Laughter is to be cultivated in our lives. And the more we can tap into his presence and joy in the way he truly exists, the more of his presence and power will flow out of our lives. So I just release that on each person in this room now, just that you would encounter, you would encounter the joy of the Lord in increasing measures in your life. And I just break off disappointment and disillusionment where you've had failures in the past. And some of you have even come into this environment trying to figure out the answers for the failures, the disappointments. And I just break off disillusionment, disappointment from those in this room. Whoa, that would say, I don't know if this is really for me or not. That I want to just confirm and affirm that you are called to be world changers, history makers. That you are called to make a difference wherever you are. That you have what it takes. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so I release you into your destiny and into drunkenness for the rest of your lives. That every day you'd wake up drinking, drinking in his presence, drinking in his, his, uh, his pleasure over your life, drinking in his smiles, drinking in his laughter. Whoa! Cultivating the kingdom of God in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I release the third of the kingdom to you that maybe has been missing. And I just release the secret weapon of joy over your lives. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So freedom! 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 All right. What I want you to do, just... Right now, I want you to just try to smile for a second. Sometimes you just have to, you have to start with a smile. Then I want you to try to laugh. Just go ahead. Maybe it's been a while for some. Just go ahead. Just try it on. All right. Okay. Okay. Whoa. Some of you are feeling like, oh, I don't know. This feels like kind of manufactured. So is forgiveness at first. Forgiveness is manufactured. I don't feel like forgiving you. Die, sucker. Right? But then you're like, okay, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you in advance. You know, it's because the more mature we get, we know that we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. We're accessing what's rightfully ours in the kingdom of God. And for too long, we've had this paradigm, mental paradigm, that says we can't access joy. It's got to actually come upon us. It's got to be like, um, what what do we call it? Um... Oh, laughter. Holy laughter. What do you mean holy laughter? It's all laughter. It's all from God. It's not holy and unholy laughter. It's laughter. You don't have to wait till the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will laugh right now. No. We cultivate it just like we do loving our wives, loving our husbands, like serving in the church, like giving our tithes, whatever it is. We cultivate everything in the kingdom by choice, by grace, through faith. And so I just release right now. Just... The ability to cultivate the joy of the Lord right now. Freedom. 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 In fact, God's healing people right now. Whoa, freedom. Freedom. 
freedom. Whoa. Whoa, some of you are like, yeah, but I'm faking it. Yeah, but even if you fake it, statistics, sociologists have shown us, psychologists have shown us, doctors have shown us, even if you fake a laugh, your body will respond and you'll heal quicker than if you have a frown on your face that's manufactured. Whoa! (laughs) How many of us have healed somebody by crying over them? That's what I thought. I've seen thousands of people healed as I've laughed over them. And it's so much more fun. It's so much more, it's easier. It's His presence. It's not a technique or a formula. And so we just release now, once again, the presence of God.